He's the curly head mate who's ready to go Nobody knows snow like reggae no snow He's ready to blow like an atomic reactor This is the show where we call it Chill Factor Talk on the power, are you ready right now? There's icons galore and they're ready to chow We got more power than a snowflower tractor Dropping the clutch, yeah, this is Chill Factor Hi, I'm Reggae Ellis and welcome to the Chill Factor Podcast. Now things are slowly starting to get going in the Northern Hemisphere with resorts opening in the US and Canada and the World Cup season is underway in Europe. Now as far as snowfalls go, there hasn't been a lot going on with mild and dry weather in most regions, although that is set to change with snow and much colder temps forecast for Europe, Japan and Western Canada for the last week of November. Uh, Unfortunately, it looks like the US is set to miss out and after mild and dry months, some ski areas have been forced to postpone opening days while others are managing to open but only on limited terrain. Uh, One of those is Aspen uh, where the ski area is celebrating its 75th year of operation this winter and it's also home to this episode's guest big mountain skier and all-round good bloke Chris Davenport. Now Chris grew up on the east coast uh, ski racing in his high school years in New Hampshire before moving west and attending college in Boulder Colorado and he moved to Aspen after graduating. Chris still lives in Aspen and he's married with three kids all boys and has been there for the last 30 years. Now, a switch from racing to free skiing in his early 20s uh, saw Chris move into the big mountains, which has led to an illustrious pro skiing career that spans three decades and is still going strong. He was one of the pioneers of big mountain skiing, winning the World Extreme Championships in 1996 and 2000, has featured in 30 ski films for Warren Miller and Match Dick Productions and is one of the premier big mountain skiers ever. Uh, Chris is a consummate professional and during his long and successful career, he's moved further into the mountains and into ski mountaineering and he was the first person to climb and ski all 14,000 plus peaks in Colorado in one year and also summited Mount Everest in 2011. There's plenty to talk about with Chris and he's a great man to have a conversation with, so let's drop in. Chris Davenport, welcome to the Chill Factor podcast. Reggae, it's always a pleasure to talk to you uh, from Aspen, Colorado to Down Under. Um, great to hear your voice and see you again, and thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah we've been working on ca- catching up for a while, of course. Um, you're a busy man. You were just telling me um, your yeah, season's underway there. You're just back from a, a Noram ski race with your middle son, who um, early season, but they're up and running already, hey? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, it's uh, actually here in Colorado and really across most of America right now, uh, we're in the, what are we in the third week of November? It's uh, pretty dry. It's been yeah. pretty warm, pretty dry. Um, but you know, Copper Mountain, Colorado, it's uh, 3000 meters and they have been making snow since October. So uh, it's a US ski team training center and it's kind of really the center of the North American ski universe this time of year. Everyone's there, including a lot of European World Cuppers that are going up to Lake Louise for the men's races or going to Killington for the women's races. Um, so yeah, there was, there's NORAM races, uh, which is kind of the Europa cup, the B, you know, B level of ski racing going on. And yeah, my middle son Tof was, uh, started his first NORAM today and, yeah. uh, it, it lasted about 10 gates for him and then he oh, blew really? out, but yeah, you know what, it's the way it goes. It's a hard course and he's got another, another go at it tomorrow, another crack at it tomorrow. So, but yeah, we're, we're up and running in for ski season, but again, it's thin, um aspen is opening on thursday but just like one lift and two trails yeah wow. um, so they'll be you know really crowded yeah everybody's tra- early snow i noticed like you know mammoth and um palisade yep. Tahoe opened early i see palisades has had to close again 
Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. No back. Yeah. So we had a we had a big atmospheric river event, we call it a big plume of moisture off the uh, Pacific in the end of October. And, you know, it dropped three to five feet or a meter to two meters in the uh, Sierra Nevada in California. And those places were like, all right, game on, let's open. Um, But then it's since then, you know, that was kind of a one-time event. Since then, it's been unseasonably warm. Mammoth has been able to hold hold snow in the upper mountain, but uh, the Tahoe resorts all got cooked. And so they're done. So now everybody's uh, kind of in in waiting for another stormy pattern. And what's happening right now in in North America, we've got this, uh, what we call a La Nina setup. So what happens there, the jet stream is kind of north. It's more up in like the... Pacific Northwest, Montana, Northern Idaho, and definitely up in British Columbia, which yeah. is just getting getting hammered right now with snow. Yeah. Um, and I'm I'm leaving to go up to BC on December 9th because um, that's that's where the that's where the action is. So <laughs> looking forward to skiing some powder up there. Yeah, well, you you have to do it. It's funny you talk about the La Nina because um they're talking about how that could prove to be a good winter in Japan. And then I was um just talking to um our old friend Tony Harrington and Harrington. Yeah. Yeah, he's off to Hawaii, but La Nina, he reckons it caused a big blocking high, so they may not get the forecast. is for a three out of ten um, winter season over there, so not a lot of big storms coming through. Uh, yeah, interesting. Hawaii. Yeah, I mean, the, these these sort of uh, Pacific oscillations and, and, you know, warmer, cooler water temperatures cause all sorts of different effects and while that one might be good for snow you know either on the east, the west side of the pacific in japan or the east side in british columbia or alaska it might not be good for you know yeah. the mainland of the u.s california and inland or or hawaii so yeah we'll we'll see what happens but certainly we're uh you know the next six eight weeks in hawaii is like big time it's when all the yeah. contests and the big waves come and so hope we hope for the best yeah i just heard from harrow the other day myself too always love right. uh, hearing from him yeah yeah, yeah, Arrow's always on the move. But, um, yeah, so, Chris, yeah, I think it's fair to say, you know, you've had a, a successful and lengthy um, professional career. Now, you know, I know it started, what, you in the mid-'90s, I suppose. We started as a ski race in the mid-'90s. You won the first World – was it the first World Extreme Championships? It was my first World Extremes, but the, um, you know, my background in terms of competitive skiing goes back to really the late 70s, early 80s as a little kid growing up ski racing, you know, in a family that was full of ski racers and uh, was kind of passed down through generations. And that's what we, that's what we did as a family. Every weekend we were going to races. And then as soon as I was old enough, I was going up to a boarding school where I could ski race or ski train every day, ski all winter. And then, you know, that took me to the University of Colorado, moving from the East Coast out to the bigger mountains of Colorado. So I could, and I started ski racing there, but then this is uh, early nineties when the the sort of not competitive free skiing scene, but you know, the, the ski movie scene and, you know, Alaska had been discovered and we were kind of as a young kid, I'm, you know, 19, 20 years old going, Whoa, look what's happening out here. I want to get involved with this. So I quit ski racing. Um, actually Shane McConkie was one of my, my close friends, both in high school and in college, we went to university together. And, uh, after I had just moved to Aspen, he called me up in the winter in 94. He's like, Hey, we're going down to Crested Butte for the U S extreme skiing championships. You know, you should come down and check this out. Yeah. Uh, he had done it the year before and I didn't really know anything about the emerging world of competitive free skiing or extreme skiing as we used to call it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I trusted Shane. He was a good buddy. We were, we always had a good time together. So I was like, hell yeah, I'll, I'll sign up. And I, I signed up for my first contest and 
really at that event, uh, felt like I kind of found my tribe. Like I just skied with a great group of people and, um, the competition side was something I was very used to cause I'd been doing it my whole life, but you know, you didn't have to put on a tight ski suit and you didn't have to go around the gates that someone else set. You could find your own line. And so I really liked that creative side of it. And yeah, that, that led me to more, more contests and winning the finals of the South American championships in Las Lanas in 95, which got me an invite to the world championships in Valdez in 96. Yeah. Um, first time in Alaska, first time in a helicopter and uh, the conditions actually weren't that great. It wasn't like fully deep powder or anything, but to be honest, I think that played in my favor being a ski racer. And I somehow ended up winning that event in Valdez. And, you know, once, once you get a world championship title in your pocket and, a, you know, I got a college degree also, I'm not going to let that slide. I was going to make a, make a business out of it, turn it into a career. And that's what I did. Well, what did you, um, what, what, what is your college degree? Actually, I was uh, I was a liberal arts uh, major. I, history was my major. Um, I really I really enjo- enjoyed studying all all sorts of uh, global and human history, but kind of focused on the American West and yeah. expansionism from the eight, like early eighteen hundreds through the century of you know people migrating from the east out west and the. Uh, exploration of mining and the development of little towns like Aspen in the 1870s and 80s and how that grew. And so uh, it was something that was really tangible to me. I could go visit these sites and try to really clearly understand what happened um, as, as people in America came, who came from really all over the world, both yeah. Asia and Europe, to kind of colonize this place and then how that developed. So it was something that was you know, it was pretty easy. And I'll be totally honest with you. I spent most of my time in college skiing and rock climbing and riding my bike. Um, and cause, uh, the education and part of it was pretty easy. So, um, I did, I did get a good education though. And I'm, I'm glad I, uh, I'm glad I got, got through with that before becoming a pro skier. And because yeah. I think uh, there's a lot of, a lot of young people now are kind of, you know, going either right out of high school into a career in the X games or whatever. And then they're like, 25, 26, 27, like, oh shit, I haven't gone to school. And then you're, you're a little off the back, you know? So it's yeah. not easy. Yeah. It's sort of hard to um, figure out the, the path. Right. Right. That. So, okay. You grew up, um, as you said, your family from the East coast, where we, in the, the Northeast there, are you from Maine? Is it around there? Close to Maine, New Hampshire. You have, right? so you, yeah, you know, New England is, which is the Northeast uh, corner yeah. of, of states is uh, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut yeah. further south. That's what we call New England. And northern New England is really where all the skiing is. So you got Vermont, you know, places like Stowe and Killington, um, Okemo. Yep, yep, big resorts there. And then New Hampshire, where I grew up, I grew up skiing in Mount Washington Valley, which is Atatash, Wildcat, and Cranmore. Right. And then I went to high school um, at a great school called Holderness School that has an incredible ski team and ski program. Uh, we trained at Waterville Valley in Cannon mountain um you know and then over in maine you got sunday river and sugarloaf and you know yeah. some great hills over there and you know all of it to be honest is just a couple hours away two three four hours away from each other so it's pretty small compared to where you live where you yeah. guys are right you know like i remember being down in oz uh, a couple years ago i, was, I must have been 2018 and drove from uh uh we were at buller with harrow and and we drove from buller over to uh to uh to threadbow yeah exactly and, you know, that was like a good five-hour, six-hour drive, wasn't it? Yeah, it's nothing. It's just a nice morning cruise from <laughs> <Yeah>. the mountains. <laughs> it, was, it was beautiful, no, well, that was, yeah. Uh, was... Well, that was the last time we caught up, actually, when um, you were out here 
with Harrow That's and, right. uh, yeah, doing the, the yeah. power launch. Yeah, we were launching Protect Our Winners. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. So, okay, and like, okay, the big moves were to um, Colorado and you, you've settled in Aspen. There's a lot of places to choose as a skier in the, the US and in, um, you know, why Aspen? Yeah, it's a good question. It, it was kind of, uh, I think, fate, actually. I was, as I was graduating university, I was looking to coach a ski team, ski club somewhere, and I had applied for jobs in Jackson Hole and Snowbird and in Vail, um, Telluride, maybe some other places that I don't remember. But uh, I just knew I wanted to move to a ski town. I wanted to keep skiing. Um, I needed to work. So I was trying to find you know, a job in ski town. But I was living with this girl at the time in Boulder, Colorado, where, where the University of Colorado is. Yeah. And we were talking about it one night. Um, and I'm telling her what my plans are and where I've applied for jobs. And she's like, well, why don't you just call my dad? I'm like, what? Who's your dad? And he turns out was the general manager of Snowmass, oh, uh, the Aspen, Aspen skier. And so I'm like, huh, okay, well, Aspen Snowmass would be really cool. And I I called him up and I'm like, I'm Chris. I live with your daughter, Brooke. I, I'm a ski racer and I'm graduating with a degree. And um, he's like, yeah, well, we got a job as a, you know, assistant uh, director or manager in the race department, Snowmass. And sure enough, I went up there and did an interview and, uh, you know, I was, I'd been here before. It wasn't my first time up here, but uh, yeah, I kind of fell in love with it and that the opportunity presented itself and that's what got me here. Yeah. And, you know, looking back, obviously, like 30 years later, it was such a great choice because yeah. um, this place is just the land of opportunity. Not only are the mountains here really big, steep, you know, really great for both on on piste and on mountain skiing, but also backcountry and ski mountaineering. Uh, but there's also just a lot of people here that want to do cool shit and have the means to do cool shit. So as a guide and someone who's become well known, there's just lots of opportunity, which is awesome. Yeah, and it's a, an awesome town. I've been there a few times. On That's time. right. You sure have. Um, and it, with the backcountry there, like I suppose um, drifting back a bit, like into the big mountain scene, like back in those early 90s, um, how loose was it up there? You know, like how structured was it? And were you say, yeah, guys like you and Shane McConkie, were you safety conscious about the when these events were on? Did they... Yeah, yeah, that's a it's a really good question. I mean, we it's it's easy to think back right now and and say, oh God, the '90s there wasn't that many people with avalanche education, and um, you know there was probably more accidents and this and that. But the the real answer is actually there's more avalanche accidents now than probably ever before. Um, we were thinking back. I mean, even before I became a professional skier, so my uh, when I first moved to Colorado that first year at the university, like I went to the mountaineering shop and the first book I bought was this guide to the 14,000 foot peaks. I, I had grown up climbing, you know, I knew mountains. I wasn't a, a total noob who didn't know anything. I knew yeah. that they were dangerous and I knew that education was a key component. Um, within gosh, the first, uh, probably three seasons of living here, I had done my avalanche level two, one and two. I'd gotten hired as a heli guide in Alaska. I had, you know, I was, I understood that to be safe in the mountains because I was hanging out with guides and I was going on, on film trips and all these things. I was like, I knew that I needed the education and I needed the experience. And so uh, I feel like I always approached it with a level of humility and respect and was never, I was never a loose cannon really. Um, and, you know, it's fun. It's fun now, so many years later that I get to mentor a whole another generation of young skiers coming up and try to, you know, we work really hard as a community, especially here in Colorado to, to keep people safe because it's just, 
it heartbreaking every winter, like last winter, you know, we had 12 avalanche fatalities here. Two of them were three people each. And you just, you scratch your head. Like why do these things just keep happening? And a lot of them happen when the avalanche hazard is, is considerable or high when you really just shouldn't be out there in the first place. And you're just like, God, what's the messaging that we're not getting across or how can we better communicate? So I, I did learn that from a very early age uh, here. And, you know, you've been here in Colorado, we have a very, very tender, very shallow, very dry snowpack. And it's, it's prone to a lot of avalanche hazard. Um, so you get used to uh, either really getting, really getting good at managing terrain and skiing low angle terrain when that, when the hazard is high or just going on the ski area and not worrying about it. You know, I don't feel pressure in the, especially the middle of the winter yeah. to go in the backcountry Cause I know it's just a ticking, it can be a ticking time bomb. You know, most of my success here on, on first ascents and on, on the big peaks, the 14ers and stuff has been, you know, late March, April, and May when the yeah. snowpack consolidates, the days get longer and things are much more manageable and much safer. Um, that's when we really get after it. So, you know, I just don't, I don't play games in the winter here anymore, nor, nor did I really ever. Yeah. Well, like you said, like, um, I suppose that sort of education is hard. Like people go, okay, there's been an awesome storm. There's going to be some great powder out there. I want to get some yeah. track, but uh, I suppose is it bravado or just stupidity? Well, you know, we like to talk about what we call the human factors, yeah. right? Human, human nature and the human psyche and our ambitions and our motivations and passions. They come from so many different places. And, and uh, you know, it's really the, the psychology of being a human and, and being someone who's motivated to get out in nature. Um, when you've worked, you know, you work a nine to five job Monday to Friday and there's a big storm on Friday and there's fresh powder on Saturday you know, it's easy to see how someone's going to go, Oh shit, this is my one opportunity. I got to go. And they might overlook or not pay attention to some of the warning signs that are out there. And, and we do see that time and time again, um, that, uh, you know, you got to, what we say, no, before you go, right. You got to get, yeah. get the forecast, get the good partners, get the information, get the equipment and just know what you're doing and not be blinded by the fact that you only have one day off. You know what, that one day off, might be the one that kills you. So don't worry about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's uh, it's all in the communication and sort of um, education that goes along with being a backcountry skier. But yeah, I mean, human psychology is complex and you see people making the same mistakes over and over and over, not just in the mountains, but you know, throughout, you know, thousands of years of humanity, we, we yeah. keep doing the same dumb shit. Wow. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I've <laughs> and, been, uh, yeah, the, the book you um, co-authored, The 50 Great Descents of um, North America. See Cody Townsend, you know, yeah. attempting to do those. I was watching last week's one when he actually went through quite, you know, closely the whole plan and how he does it, you know. And I think um, things like that, it's a, it's a good way for people to be aware of what the backcountry and big mountains are capable of. Yeah, you're absolutely right there. And, I, you know, I'm a huge fan of Cody. He, I got to mentor him when he was about 19 and I was uh, – 29 30 and it was just finishing the 14ers we were both solomon athletes at the time and he kind of came along with a on a bunch of trips with me um and now the role is almost reversed where he's out there uh with a arguably a bigger platform than me and, and doing a great job with it taking people step by step through his process his thoughts how he pulls this stuff off um you know when, when we wrote this book 50 classic ski descents uh my partners and i were like 
um, we, we really enjoyed putting together this incredible list of beautiful things to ski. And we did think in the back of our minds, like, huh, I wonder if someone will try to ski all 50 at some point. Um, yeah. I've skied, I've skied 26, but that was just by virtue of going to cool mountains over, you know, a couple decades. I didn't actually yeah. try to, you know, do this as a pro as a, as a list. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think Cody, uh, is, is showing that setting goals is just like with my 14 year project is, is awesome and can be really motivating. Yeah. Um, but you know, also really hard. So you have to, uh, have a, a plan of how you're going to achieve it. And you got, you know, all these tools that you use in the process that you go through. So it's awesome that he's sharing that. I personally think that it's, um, more difficult than most people understand, right? right? Like you've got this list of 50 amazing descents from the East coast to the West coast up in Canada, Alaska. Um, and we purposely curated this list to have some, what I would call green runs, some really easy ones that you can do in an afternoon or in a morning. Yeah. Um, then there's a kind of a middle group that, you know, takes much more experience, but they're doable pretty much every single year. Yeah. Then you've probably got maybe 10, that are super hard. You, you should be, you know, an avalanche expert and a ski mountaineering expert, and they might not even come into condition every year. Uh, and then there's four, three, four, five of those peaks in there that are full on expedition, um, probably come in only once every few years, um, have only been done once or twice. Like they're yeah. really, really hard and you, you may never get them. So, you know, I, I can totally see Cody getting, to 45, 46, and then not getting those last four, or, or maybe it takes them 10 years to get them. Um, and that's kind of what's cool about this project is you just, yeah, you just don't know. You just don't know. Well, um, yeah. You're talking about like the, the mountaineering, of course, like you did the, was it 54 peaks over 14,000 yes. feet peaks in Colorado in one year. I presume yeah. that was not one season. Well, I, I was trying to do them all in one season and I got to 46 by the uh, end of the winter at the end of the spring. Yeah. So I, I, um, looking back on it, that, that particular year was 2006. I was filming with Warren Miller. Um, I was still doing some free ride world tour events. So I wasn't fully committed to just doing this project. I had some other things going on. If I think back and I uh, had not done those other, um, trips and just, focused on the 14ers, I would have finished them in one season, but it's almost, it's beside the point right now. Cause it, you know, I ended up finishing the following, uh, midwinter and January and just under a year's total time. And, um, it was, it was great. And that, that sort of time stood for 10 years, uh, until, uh, a, a guy broke my, my record in 2017. Yeah. Um, and well, records are there to be broken. Hundred <laughs> percent. No, I was really, I was bravo. I was super happy yeah. for him. It was really cool. And um, I actually was having a conversation the other night with a young kid from uh, from Utah who's a big uh, up and coming ski mountaineer, and he thinks that he could do it in two to three months, um, which would cut 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 it even in half again. Wow. Uh, so I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of help help him with that project. It'd be cool to see next yeah. generation. Yeah, definitely. Well, you talk like you. Um your professional competitive career, um, yeah, free ride world tour for a few years as well. And of course you, um, I think you had a couple of years down at, um, the heli challenge in New Zealand. Oh yeah. Which, um, with Harrow running that, that, that might've been a bit of a cowboy event, but I <laughs> yeah, it certainly was. Yeah. I came down summer of 96 after, after winning the world championships in Valdez that year, uh, got a call from <laughs> this, uh, seemed I didn't know many Kiwis at the time or Aussies for that matter. And I got a call from, from Harrow and, uh, you know, invited 
pointed us down to this uh, wild event, um, the World Heli Challenge. I think I've got a poster of it somewhere in my in my house. And uh, it was so cool because a bunch of us North Americans came down and I actually stayed at Harrow's house. I slept at, he had this house in Wanaka. And in the back of the house, there was kind of like a, a sauna hot tub room, but yeah. the hot tub was broken. So it was empty. So I slept in the hot tub for like two weeks. <laughs> and uh, we, we, yeah, yeah. Me and a couple other guys bought a, bought a car for like 500, $500 uh, and, and ripped it around until it broke. I'm surprised the Wanaka cops didn't get us first, but uh, we had a great time. And, and uh, I believe, I, I believe I won the event down there that summer and the following year in 97, I won it a couple of times at least. Yeah. Uh, it was cool. Cause it was, and my brother won some years later, like maybe 10 years later, he won yeah. it a couple of times, but that one suited me well. Cause you had a big mountain day, kind of extreme skiing day. And then we had the freestyle day and then a Chinese downhill and the yeah. Chinese downhill was just awesome, you know, and it was hell, it was heli rides and big parties in Wanaka. And I just met so many amazing people and, and, you know, fell in love with New Zealand, of course, and have been back there many, many times since. Uh, but those, those days were wild. Cause it was, I mean, like you said, it was cowboy. It was the beginning of this, uh, what we consider now it's sort of mainstream free skiing, but back then it was totally new. Yeah. I mean, and you talk about that, you know, the people you meet, obviously one of the best things about you know your life and your, your chosen career is all the travel you've done all the people you've met like i know um your eldest son uh, stian yeah named after stian hagen the norwegian yep. skier who's married That's to andrea binning a, like australian legend yeah yeah um you know it's a far cry from you know just ski racing um when you're at school isn't it how it just evolved and it keeps evolving you're right. It does keep evolving. And it's been so cool to be um, a, a part of this building of community since really the very beginning and see how far it's come. You know, um, it's like really like being in the right place at the right time. I just happened to be at the right age and be a good enough skier in those in those early 90s when it was all starting to get off the ground. And, um, you know, if I was if I was a young free skier right now, it's, it's a lot more difficult to get your foot in the door and, and make a real living. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's just a totally different world that we live in. And, and you know, we didn't have the, the pressures and expectations surrounding social media back then, right? You'd get out with a photographer, you, and, and, you know, you'd shoot photos for magazines like we did with you guys. We would do film segments, um, you know, you do poster signings at the movie tours and things, and that's how you connect with the consumers. And, you know, nowadays there's this sort of barrier uh, with just people post stuff on social media and call it good. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm a real fan and believer of the old school way of like getting out there and shaking hands and skiing with people and going to events and stuff. Cause that's just, it's just so much fun to do that. Um, and at the end of the day, like we're, we're athletes, we're skiers. I want to be out in the mountains. I don't want to be staring at my phone and, no. you know, po posting stuff. That's just not who I am. I mean, I do it and I try to do it well, but it's uh, it's a very different world than it was, you know, 20, even 25 years ago. Well, I suppose it's fair to say you're sort of pioneering of the modern eras of professional skier. Prior to, to that, to be a professional skier, you pretty well had to be a World Cup racer or, you know, a World yeah. Cup style moguls. That was the only way you're going to make a living. Um, yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Besides, you know, guiding and, you know, things like that, to be a, a pro skier where it's based on your performance and the public. Um, you're one of the pioneers of that. And, yeah, I suppose, um, you know, the films like Warren Miller, uh, TGR, Matchstick Productions, you know, over the last 25 years, um, well, Warren Miller, 
60 years, 60, I suppose. Almost 70 years, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's uh, I think it's really cool because, like, I noticed you, they've all have their um, pre-season tour every year throughout North America. It's, right. it's still happening, you know. You go to a premiere in, you know, Salt Lake City or I saw there's one happening down in a uh, place in Florida, you know. So, oh, no way. Yeah, so it's kind of cool. I think it's uh, Matchstick are doing one down there. Cool. Um, so it's kind of cool that you guys still get that opportunity to, to go to yeah. the, you know, the premieres and people still love the big screen ski film. There's no question about it. And, and I think what, what it is really going on, I mean, it's easy to stream these things online. You know, we used to get DVDs or whatever, and now it's all on the internet, on YouTube and what have you. But that is, uh, that pales in, compar- in comparison to the experience of going out to the theater with 500 or a thousand other skiers and snowboarders and, you know, having a party, watching the movie, getting psyched for winter. That speaks to the community involved in winter sports. And like, that is what we love about it. You know, I, I would, I love coming down to Jindabyne or going to Wanaka or going to Whistler or New York city. I was just in New York a couple of days ago at an event and you get together with other skiers and you tell stories, you get psyched. And, um, I just, I love that. And you can do it all over the world, you know, whatever mountain town or ski town you're in, uh, people speak really the same language. It's a great, uh, brings people together in a way unlike anything else. And certainly you don't find that sense of community on the internet. No, definitely not. I mean, and like, you, know, you had, uh, what, quite a prolific number of films. I think you know, well over 20 films you've appeared in over the years. Yeah, more. Yeah. So, um, and then with that, like, obviously you work with uh, Matchstick and Warren Miller quite a bit. And then there's a come a period where you, you think, okay, I've got to move on. There's like, you know, someone. Yeah. You know, someone yeah, that definitely, that's a good through. question. That that definitely happened to me. And, and actually the result of that, uh, feeling was what we were just talking about earlier, the 14ers project. So from uh, 96, after winning the world championships through about 2006, a 10 year period, my entire winter and a lot of my summer season was spent chasing competitions and chasing film segments. That was it. You know, I was doing a competitive schedule, uh, X games, uh, what was before it was called the free ride world tour, there was, you know, a whole series of events around the world we would go to. And then between those competitions, we were shooting film segments for Warren Miller and matchstick. And it was awesome. I loved it. Um, but after 10 years of doing it and, you know, winning a couple of world championships and X games medal and a bunch of other stuff and having great film segments, I was honestly a little bit jaded. I was a little bit tired of it. And, was looking for something else. And that is exactly the summer when I came up with the idea to ski the 14ers. So I went into that following winter saying, I'm not going to do any contests. Um, not going to focus on filming. Although I did, I did do a film segment with, I can't remember who, I think it was matchstick that year. Um, but I just focused on this whole new thing that was my project, my passion, uh, my direction. And honestly, like a lot of people said, oh, what is Chris doing? You know, he's not following the, uh, formula for being a pro he's doing something totally different and what is this you know because no one was doing that you're still in your late 20s then right yeah yeah i was uh no i was actually i was actually 35 ah old bloke yeah 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 exactly you know i've been like i said i've been competing for 10 or 11 years and yeah um so you know i told i kind of told my sponsors what i was going to be doing with this 14ers project and they were sort of like huh we don't really know what that is but okay um and, you know, little did I know and little did they know that the outcome of it was incredible. We got tons of media hits on it uh, and it became a, a huge thing and really 
started driving the growth or explosive growth of backcountry skiing in North America, yeah. ski mountaineering, let's call it. Yeah. Um, look what, look what you can do. You can ski all these peaks. People were coming from all over to ski 14ers, you know, and then the, I was like, wow, that was the best thing I've ever done. So, you know, 2007, I went up, ski Grand Teton, went up and skied Denali, went up to the Pacific Northwest, skied all the 14ers in California. And this really became the thing that was driving me. I had this wonderful decade of contests and films. Now I'm into two decades of ski mountaineering and first descents. And um, I'm having, you know, as good a time as ever. I mean, the the COVID stuff has kind of gotten in the way a little bit, but uh, um, it's, it's cool that skiing can be such a journey in our life where you don't do the same thing you know you evolve like what you did as a young skier in your 20s is very different than what you do now and same is true for me and you know i'm looking forward to the next few decades where i continue to evolve and do different things and it's just such a dynamic sport there's something in it for the the three-year-old and the 93-year-old and they can they can have an equal amount of fun right the smile is the same um but i will say throughout all those experiences of filming and contests and mountaineering, you know, I've had a, a bunch of near death experiences and I've certainly lost a lot of friends in the mountains, you know, dozens and dozens. And, um, so my appetite for, uh, risk is, is lower. Um, I'm definitely more conservative now. I don't feel like I need to push as hard. Listen, I've, I've built my brand, you know, I, I don't need any more notoriety or, you know, stuff than I already have. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I've made it this far is what I'm trying to say. And now I'm, I'm trying to be pretty careful and picking and choosing the right days. And which is why I love being a guide and taking people skiing is because I can be pushing their boundaries, but yeah. still be totally within my own and in a safe place. Um, but it was when I was pushing my own boundaries that things started getting really dangerous. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, that included skiing 2000 feet at Lotski, you know, and um, in the Himalayas. Now you, you've summited Everest. Um, like did the mountaineering, you said you you climbed a lot as a, as a kid, but the mountaineering, um, it just seems to be a progression that came out of big mountain skiing, big mountain competition. Yep. Just evolved in a, you know, climbing then skiing, you know, like, yeah, you're right. And, and the thing, the thing was that like, you know, in the, in the nineties to be a professional skier and make money, you had to kind of get in front of the camera, right? Make movies. You had to win competitions and that's what the sponsors were paying you to do. Um, There was no such thing as a professional ski mountaineer. I mean, there might've been a few guys in Chamonix that were doing stuff, but like it it didn't exist here. And I sort of like broke through that glass ceiling and said, actually, listen, you can represent your brands and go out in the big mountains and ski mountaineer and film. And it's a different thing. But like nowadays we see lots of these types of people um, and even someone like Cody's, you know, who's won all sorts of world tour events, been in all the films, he's made a decision to not do that stuff and focus on this mountaineering project with the 50, the yeah. 50 classic ski descents. And although he is doing it in an incredibly um, well thought out uh, content creation kind of way with Bjarni Salen, his filmer and, yeah. you know, creating these awesome YouTube episodes, um, you know, when I skied all the 14ers, we didn't have the digital media component that he has now. Yeah. I would have loved to have done that. Uh, but yeah, yeah the, the world's changed. And you know what? 10 or 20 years from now, there'll be there'll be some other young whippersnapper that's going to do something, something else and push the yeah. sport, you know, in a different direction or move it forward. Yeah. Well, I noticed, you know, you've been with Red Bull for a long time, right? So Red Bull, you know, yeah, my son, you know, he looks at someone sponsored. I can't believe someone's so sponsored by Red Bull, you know, a 15-year-old skier. 
Yeah. Um, but, you know, Red Bull had this perception of, of young, extreme, the whole thing. But obviously someone like that with you, they've uh, your sponsors have been happy for you to move from just, you know, like you yeah. said, in front of the camera, in the movies and magazines and the competitions. Um, so having that support must be really nice as well, knowing they, they'll back you. Yeah, I mean, there's no question about it that having having brands like like Red Bull that you partner up with and that, that back you is um, it allows you to do what you do as a professional. I mean, at the end of the day, I've got a you know wife and children and a home, and you yeah. know, these things come with certain certain uh, costs and whatnot. So you got to make a living. And um, yeah, back in in 1997, Shane McConkey and I were the first Red Bull athletes in North America, and they have uh, you know been with me ever since and continue to support Shane's family. Um, and I, I think I'm a lifer, honestly, like they love the fact that I reinvent myself every once in a while. And they love the fact that I'm still out there in the public eye and that, um, and now actually I do a lot of mentoring of young Red Bull athletes that are coming on board and they might be, you know, 16 or 18 or 20 and kind of learning how to be a professional, how to talk to the media, how to talk to consumers, you know, how to, how to be kind of business savvy, if you will. Yeah. And so, um, there's, there's lots of ways that you can, you know, still be, um, um, active and, and still be relevant without having to huck your meat off a 30 meter cliff. You know, <laughs> a point where 80 foot cliffs aren't, aren't part of the, uh, yeah. Know, yeah. You know, your body, your body's your body. I don't care who, who you are as an athlete. Um, and in skiing, you know, it can be quite physical, you know, you're going to have certain things, uh, start to need an oil change every once in a while, if you will. Oh, hundred percent. Oh, it's pretty awesome. You can make a whole professional career out of a life in the mountains and skiing. Like it is. Yeah, it is. You know? And it's a dream. It's a dream. Yeah. It's living the dream. That's what I, you know, that's what I wanted to do when I was a teenager. I was like, I just want to work in, work in the ski area so I could ski every day. I didn't know yeah. there wasn't this thing about being a pro. So I just, uh, uh, really wake up every day. Like, wow, I get to do this. This is so cool. I don't, it's, you just don't take it for granted. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the responsibilities of, you know, um, a family. Um, yeah. How old are your kids now? Yeah. So my kids, I have three boys. They are 20, 18 and 14 or right. sorry, 13. Um, and they're all still skiing and, and, uh, they love it. And, uh, it's been fun to actually, none of them live at home anymore. They're all off doing stuff. So it's a interesting time in my wife and I's life. Cause we, we don't have any kids at home. We're empty nesters as we call it. And, uh, <laughs> How's that going? She go, when are you well, going for another trip, Chris? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's interesting that it happened during COVID cause it was fall 2020. So it would have been spring yeah. for you guys. Um, you know, and, and COVID was still everywhere and the kids were all off at school and we were kind of here together. And, you know, you have a lot more time on your hands, which is, which is nice. But at the same time, um, you realize how important the energy of having kids in the house is yeah, and like how much fun that is. And actually two of them are back right now. Cause we have the, the Thanksgiving holiday this week, a big, big holiday in the States. Yeah. And so, um, having them in the house right now is really cool. And it's, uh, yeah, I won't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I won't call like when my wife and I are here alone boring, but after 20 years of having it with kids, it can be like a little boring. <laughs> so it was good. You know, we went to, we went to Europe this fall together, went to Italy and rode our bikes and we've yeah. just got a lot more time to do fun stuff. Um, not during the winter season. Cause you know, she's working as a ski patroller. Still still on, I was going to say still on ski patrol. Yep. Still ski patrolling on Aspen mountain. Wow. So wintertime, you know, we're, we're really buckled down. I'm doing my thing. She's doing her thing and the kids are sort of wherever. Um, but yeah, yeah it's, it's been, it's been pretty cool raising so a family doing what again? we do. Jesse. Yeah, that's right. Because yeah. I remember years ago you were out in Australia with um, Chris Davenport. Oh, you are Chris Davenport. Chris Anthony. Um, that's right. Yeah, we came down for the Warren Miller tour. 
Yeah, that's right. You're in Mount Hotham and then I did an interview with you up at uh, Sydney. You did a presentation, you guys, at um, Larry that's Adler, right. one of the, the retail stores up there. Yep, yep um, that was fun. Yeah, and I remember the time in that interview you were saying, well, I was saying, well, how's your partner? Yeah. She said, well, she's uh, hardcore. She's, you know, she understands because she's in the mountain. She's, and as a patroller, she understood what you were doing but also what your approach was. Yeah, you're right. Risk. Yeah, no, and that that still remains true. Uh, you know, her her first love is is skiing as well. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm second. <laughs> no, we're <laughs> skiers, and I, I certainly would not have succeeded in my career or been able to do half the things that I've done without the support there. Um, you know, her holding down the fort at home, raising our children, doing all the things that she was able to do while still being a ski patroller, while I was traveling on the world tour, going to the Himalaya, making these ski films. There was a gigantic amount of sacrifice that that went on in her life to allow you know me to succeed as an athlete and, and kind of support the family and yeah um so yeah i owe her like 25 years of heli ski trips no question about that yeah and a few a few more um fall trips to italy <laughs> exactly exactly and like okay so um stian the oldest kid is 20 so okay like when you were that's kind of the peak you know around you were 30 years old um did you think all right i've got you know, I've got responsibilities. I've got a family. I've got a child now. I have to pull back from risk taking. Or did it slow you down? Or no, no, I didn't really think. I didn't really think like that at all. I, I actually kind of, in many ways, felt the opposite. Like now that I have kids, I'm need to be more serious about the business side of this. I need to be more serious about being safe for sure. Yeah. But you know, it's almost like if you're a race car driver and you have kids, do you go out and drive slower? No, no of course not, because that's not what it's not what you do and who you are. It just made me it made me a better risk manager because I was just taking more time to think about these things because I just had I had more on the line. Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of the downside risk. So uh yeah, no, I continued to, to push hard and, and do cool things, both uh, you know, here in Colorado and around the world and you know, multiple Himalaya trips on on eight thousand meter peaks and stuff like that. But um I, I will say now that I've I'm even older, um I don't need to do that stuff um, yeah. anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I just, cause you, I mean, you mentioned Shane McConkie, of course. I remember when he unfortunately died in uh, that flying accident, a lot of people said, well, Shane shouldn't be doing this stuff anymore because he's a father. And yeah, of course, you know, but like you said, it's, uh, well, my thoughts are, well, that's who you are as well. Like you said, if you, you know, all of a sudden you go, oh, I'm not going to do all that stuff I love anymore. You sort of, it's not going to be a great balance at home anyway, is it? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, again, it's easy to armchair quarterback these, these things, you know, to sit down in your chair and go, gosh, what, that's what an idiot. Why is that person doing that? Well, you don't know that person and you don't know what they've gone through and what their family situation is and everything. And yeah, uh, yeah certainly, you know, something like, like base jumping or ski base jumping is not widely accepted as a safe uh, activity. So for a lot of people, that's crazy. Whereas, you know, skiing and even backcountry skiing, and to a degree ski mountaineering is more widely accepted in sort of the general um in mountain towns and places like this is just what people do yeah. so uh but you know with, with that said and we talked about this at the beginning of the podcast like there's people dying out there in avalanches that are out on days that are really dangerous and yeah. so that that's something that, that bothers me and that um you know i, I want to just continue to send the message that it's easy to just say no it's easy to not go it's easy to turn around you know, the hard thing is going when you know it's the wrong decision. Um, yeah. 
So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if that answers your question or not. I got off topic, but yeah. Um, yeah. Safety, safety's key. I mean, the sport's supposed to be fun. No one wants, no one wants to die doing it. So. Yeah. No, I just thought, you know, like from your point of view, um, yeah, and the evolution as, as a professional, it kind of, kind of worked well that way. But, um, and yeah. yeah, with your kids now, like obviously three boys are all skiers. They're all done a fair bit of ski racing. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. They're all still ski racing. What are they looking for? What are they looking towards in, now, obviously, they look at your career and go, "Hey, Dad's Dad's had a pretty yeah. good life." You know? Yeah, you, you you know, I I'm not sure that I like know the exact answer because they're their own people, and um, yeah. I don't think any of them have aspirations to be pro skier. Um, yeah. I th- I think that was their dad's thing, and uh, you know, they they see the lifestyle that I've led, and they see you know, the equipment that I design, develop and all the stuff that comes and the, the lifestyle we get to lead. And I think that's fun for them, but, uh, it is cool to see them becoming adults and finding their own passions, um, outside of skiing, which they continue to have that passion. But, uh, um, you know, like my older son has been super involved in the research and, um, beginning to invest in like NFTs and cryptocurrency and stuff. That's something that I know nothing about, but it's, yeah frankly, it's the future. And so it's really cool to see a passion come out like, like that. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I, I would hope that they just have passion for some things in life and they go out there and follow what makes them feel good and what, what they love. And it, it, I know that they will always have skiing and we as a family will always go skiing together. We love going on hut trips and going on heli skiing, cat skiing, you know, just getting together. Skiing just brings you together and that's where we have the best time. But uh, I I do hope that they, I don't want them to be a pro skier. It's too dangerous to be honest. (laughs) It's, it's too dangerous. Um, I'd rather have them find something else that uh, they can be happy with. that can challenge them both mentally and physically and, and um, you know, take them to different parts of the world, like, like my ski- skiing did for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose, um, like growing up in uh, Aspen's their hometown kind of thing, yep. um, well, is, yep. um, you've been there for 30 years. As you said, there's been some changes in Aspen, like every ski town in the world, right. um, right. it gets harder and harder for locals to live there. Um, as things become more expensive. So like Aspen, like I've been, like, last time I was there was 2019, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and um, it hadn't changed a lot from the previous time on the surface. It was still. What are your thoughts about it? Is it? I mean, the mountain's still the mountain, but the the town and the community still. Yeah, there. man, I got to I got to tell you, Reg, it, it. I've seen more change in the last two years than I've seen in the last thirty years here. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's always there's always incremental growth and incremental change year over year, but it's sometimes it's hard to see because it's small and there's little yeah. things here and there, and and certainly, yeah, things get more expensive over time but what we've seen happen in aspen and in mountain towns all over north america in the last couple years is absolutely astounding and it's it's frightening to be honest it has gotten so expensive the days of the ski bomb are completely over there's nowhere to live we have a serious shortage of workers serious shortage of workforce housing um, the Aspen Skiing Company, which is our, our four mountains here in Aspen Snowmass, um, in the middle of the winter on a normal year, we're, we're, we typically employ almost 5,000 people. And right now, they're about seven or 800 workers short. Um, they just can't, they can't find people and they especially can't find people for, you know, kind of the lower end jobs, like the dishwashers and the line cooks and the housekeeping and all of these things that are essential 
uh, you know, lift operators, you know, these things are essential for operating a resort, uh, and a ski town and stuff. And so it's a, it's a serious problem right now. And, um, we, I talk with people in other ski towns about it. Everyone's having the exact same issue. Uh, and it's just like COVID has just accelerated all of these things because in, at least in America, there's, there's, pl- there's a lot of people with a lot of money. Yes. Yeah, they've all, they, yeah, and same in Australia. And they've all come to these paradises in the mountains and driven the prices up so much that, you know, locals, while you might be able to sell your house for a shit ton of money, you've got to move. I don't know where you got to move, but it ain't going to be in Colorado. You got to go somewhere totally different. Yeah. Um, you know, places like Bozeman, Montana are getting inundated with people from out of state. Boise, Idaho, Tahoe is in, insane. Yeah. Um, so it's, I would say I'm more concerned now than I've ever been about the health of our community. And it's, it's uh, the people that live here. It's not a good time in ski towns at the moment. Restaurants are closing locally owned restaurants that have been around forever, all closing. They can't afford to be here anymore. And then you got these corporate restaurant groups moving in. Don't know the vibe of the town. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, a cookie cutter style upmarket restaurant. Exactly. I will bring it to Aspen. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, the mantra here and in other mountain towns has always been, if you cater to the locals and that's where the locals like to hang out, then that's where the tourists want to go. Cause that's where the vibe is. Yeah. And now you got all these restaurant operators and, and retail operators that come in that don't cater to locals at all because locals can't afford it yeah. and there's no vibe there and then they die. And then there's the next one, the next year. And then the next, yeah. you know, and it's like, we just let, let, we're just left scratching our heads as to when this ends and how it ends or I don't know where this goes from here, but it, it's not good. Yeah, no, not at all. It's like here in, you know, like in Jindabyne, you know, feeder town to Paris. Yeah. I think, um, property prices since 20 pre COVID to now have, um, it's gone up 40%. Yeah. No, no yeah. surprise. It's crazy. It's ridiculous. You know? Yeah. And, um, and it's everywhere. Like, you know, it's, and it's one of those problems that you, it doesn't seem to have a solution. Yeah. Yeah. So like Threadbow, what, where did workers, like kids that work on the mountain, where are they live in? I mean, they've got some workforce housing, but like, is it enough? Yeah. Well, they're down here in Jindabyne, it gets to the point where, you know, a lot of crew would get together and rent an apartment together. And yeah. now people have bought from Sydney or Canberra, bought those apartments and they just put on an Airbnb at a really high price. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, one of the solutions we had here is we put a, like a moratorium on all short-term rentals. So yeah. Airbnb and, and VRBO are like basically stopped. And right. if you were doing it, if you were doing it before, I, I guess you're kind of grandfathered in, but that's just a, a cycle that's unsustainable. Yeah. You, know, you need, you need that housing stock for your local workforce, not for, you know, some douchebag from Houston, Texas to come here for the, a week. <laughs> Sorry if you're listening in Houston. <laughs> no, so I thought you said some douchebag from Sydney's eastern suburbs, but we won't say that. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it is. It's a, just a, an ongoing problem, you know. Particularly, yeah. I think he shares it. You know, I think it's pretty similar in Queenstown and Wanaka as well. But um, oh, I can't imagine. Yeah, it's got to yeah. be. But you know, well, anyway, what do you do? So um, you know, you were out here a couple of years ago. I know you you, you get involved in things, Chris. I'll I'll tell you not not one to just sort of sit around waiting for people to do things. So you're heavily involved in protect our winters. You're on the board. Um, How did that come about? Did Jeremy Jones just tap you on the shoulder pretty well? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, you know, I'd always been 
uh, someone who loved the natural world, the mountains and the rivers and all the, all the beauty of being outdoors. And, uh, I had seen things changing myself in the two thousands, uh, where I, places I was traveling and, uh, you know, being educated, I, I knew what climate change and global warming were, uh, even though it was kind of, you know, new conversation to the, to sort of general public or whatever. And, uh, but yeah, 2009, uh, at the, at, at the trade show in, in Denver, Colorado, um, or actually, I think it might have been in Salt Lake that year. Uh, Jeremy, uh, who I had known for a long time, and I went to high school with his brother, uh, Steve, who founded TGR, um, yeah. came up and he's like, hey, I've got this this uh, nonprofit going to protect our winners. I'm like, yeah, man, I've, I've heard of what you're doing. He's like, well, we're starting our first, uh, you know, nonprofit board of directors. Would you be interested in in getting on board? And that was a, you know, a great nod of respect to me that Jeremy gave me. And of course, a great opportunity for me to get involved. And, um, you know, I look back on it now and there was sort of the first half of my professional career was in many ways somewhat selfish, where it was kind of about me, me, me winning competitions, making great ski movies, how much, um, you know, uh, exposure can I get in the media? How much money can I make? Um, of course I'm growing my family too, but it was like trying to, it was about Chris and I got to a point, you know, in, especially in starting with protect our winners and in learning about how to do that nonprofit work as an activist, where I began realizing like, wow, it's not about me. It's about leaving the planet a better place, leaving, leaving communities in a better place, just doing good. And that actually feels better than winning a contest. And, and, and so now this, this sort of second half of my career, have, I've really turned the page to um, what I do being all about helping others, whether it's communities or the planet in general, or all the brands I work with on their sustainability. Um, that's the thing that really makes me happy. And, you know, when I'm 90 something years old and taking my last runs, I'm not going to think about the contests I won or the movies I made. I'm going to think about the difference that yeah. I made. Um, it's just, it's hard to really understand that mindset when you're really young. Uh, I certainly didn't, but once I, once I realized how powerful that giving back mindset can be, um, that sort of became all I wanted to do. Yeah. So I've gotten involved in, in a lot of other uh, charitable organizations and nonprofits. I'm, I'm currently the president of the Aspen Valley Ski Club, which is the largest ski club in the country. Yeah. We have 2,400 kids. Uh, we raise a ton of money to, for scholarships for these kids. And because, uh, uh, you know, you might not realize it, but not everybody in this valley is a rich Aspenite. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, I serve on the board of a school back in New Hampshire and uh, get involved in avalanche education. Um, I just, yeah, I try to do, I try to give back with everything that I do now, which is really, re really rewarding. Yeah, well, I can see how it would be. I mean, that and like, you know, as you, you keep moving on, it's like something that you can, that that need not so much need that desire is something yeah. fulfilling. Do you get, exactly. um, you know, with the, the pow and especially in the U S last five years, I suppose, um, see the Trump era, I'd like to call it. Yep. They got pretty, right. almost, it's been pretty toxic on a lot of things, but, um, just focusing on protect our winters here, get frustrated with like, it just seems it's such a divide, isn't it? It's like, it's almost, it's ideological. It's almost trying to talk to someone and, about religion they just like that's it and they won't accept anything um yeah. do you get to the point you go is this worth it like it's just the brick walls are too hard um yes and no i mean i i think we certainly over the last four year five years have had a, a lot of challenge and I, i'll never forget waking up i was in 
Ushuaia, Argentina, November 17th, 2016, going to Antarctica, literally getting on the boat to Antarctica that next, that morning, yeah. we woke up and saw the, looked at the, looked at the phone and was like, holy shit. And my, my other guide who was in the room with me looked at me, he's like, what, what? I'm like, Trump won. Like, <laughs> oh my God. Wow. And, uh, but so we knew that those years were going to be an uphill battle, but what, what sort of buoys me and makes me, um, you know, positive is that there's still, no matter what side of the aisle you're on politically, religiously, there's still no denying science. Yeah. And, you know, we're in the, we're in the business of talking about what's good for the planet and that's, it's a science-based thing. And so we all know it's the right thing to do because science tells us it's the right thing to do. And, um, so it just, it, it, it takes time. And yeah, we had a, a, you know, four years of basically being completely, um, sort of stonewalled from Washington, DC and the, you know, Republican party was unwilling to listen. But now that that group of leaders is mostly gone, not all, but a lot of them are, um, there's actually, uh, a Republican climate change caucus in the house of representatives right now. Um, there are many, uh, what we would consider conservatives in our government that realize that, uh, the science is real and they're starting to understand how to talk about it in a way that doesn't alienate their voters. Um, but also makes them look like they know what they're actually talking about. So, you know, you just see these like little um, positive things happening more and more and more. What we, one of the things that we really have seen a lot in the last few years is we see big institutional investors like banks and big insurance companies and um, pension funds and um, endowment funds at schools divesting from fossil fuels. They're pulling all of their money out of there. And it's just undeniable. And if, you know, if you're a senator from West Virginia and the West Virginia state pension plan pulls out their money out of coal, like, what are you going to do? This is the way it is. Like there is, these are dying assets. There's no point in being in them. They're losing. And uh, these people are, are, are there to make money for their, um, the people in their pension or the people in their endowment or their shareholders. And so we see a really bright light at the end of this very long tunnel. We know uh, there's a lot of um, sort of great things going on. And so we're in it for the long haul. And uh, we've got to you know, protect our winners has gone from a organization of two employees and like a hundred thousand dollar budget to now an organization of more than 20 employees and a very, very, uh, a much bigger budget. And we're still growing, um, and a whole new generation of POW scientists and activists, athletes, uh, supporters. So, um, we're moving in the right direction, continuing with the mission, and, yeah. uh, you know, turning passionate people into climate activists. And, you know, there's so much information on the Protect Our Winners website about how to get involved, because that's really one of the biggest questions people have is like, listen, I, I know the world's going to shit. I know things are getting hotter and drier and stormier and on and on and on. But what do I do about it? Well, we have the, the roadmap for you to get involved. So you just need to go on protectourwinners.org. There's tons of information and it's just fun to see people um, sort of figure out like how to pull their own biggest lever. Like what's the thing that you can do that's uh, going to be easy for you to do. Um, and it's all there. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like there is room for 
positivity, I suppose, sometimes it just seems a bit overwhelming for everyone. Yeah, but I mean, it's, you know, human, human history has been full of times that seemed overwhelming and then, you know, you triumph at the other end, I guess. And it's just, uh, yeah. you know, we're in a certain time where the political divide has been greater than ever. And, um, but we need to just rally around this one thing that we can all agree on that. Like we, we like clean water. We like clean air. Like who's going to say, no, I don't, I don't like clean water. I don't like clean air. Like, yeah, right. It doesn't make any sense. You know that's, what I mean? That's logical. <laughs> yeah. If, if you're a politician, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, you really can say, Hey, you don't, you like clean water and clean air. And the politician says, yeah, I do. And then you say, well, why did you uh, vote to open this new coal mine? What are they going to say? You know, yeah, you yeah, got to put them on the spot. You got to put them on the spot you got to make them stand up for what they're, what they're doing. Yeah. Cause they're held accountable. They're held accountable for the, the pollution and the degradation of, of our planet and society that gets passed down to the next generation. And that's just totally unacceptable. You know, well, we're not going to stand, we're not going to stand for it. Yeah. Well, you can see that sort of that movement sort of, is flowing into a younger crew like it saw that in Glasgow. Yeah, know, right. Yeah. Yep. But um, you're talking before about um, the different um, things that you're involved in, being back on the snow. Um, so you've been doing a fair bit of guiding, you know, like um, I know you've been doing right. the, the camps in Portia in Chile every year and you've been spending a bit of time in, I was just going through some old text messages and um, <laughs> you're in Nisico and I happen to be in Huckaba. At the time, yeah. that was, uh, early twenty. So you've been um, so you're, you're guiding uh, everywhere in the world, or you just sort of yep, yep, yeah, really, uh, honestly, everywhere in the world now. I've been skiing on all seven continents, and um, over the last oh, gosh, let's call it a decade, but really more. Um, my schedule has kind of been January in in Hokkaido, yeah, you know, February February maybe back in Aspen, March going to the Alps, um, April up in Alaska. May kind of working on personal projects, ski mountaineering in places, um, typically in North America that time of year. And then, um, you know, June and July, I, like one of my great passions is riding bikes. I love my mountain bike, road bike, gravel bike now. So I'm riding my bike a lot in June and July. And then the month of August uh, for the last 20 years, except for these last two seasons, which with COVID we couldn't do, uh, I've spent in Chile in South America, running a ski camp and guiding heli ski guiding and ski touring down there. Yeah. Uh, we're su- certainly hoping, hoping to get back down to Portillo in 2022 and resurrect the superstars camp, which is a great all mountain skiing camp with great coaches, you know, and then in the fall, like September, October, I've been kind of here in Colorado, uh, November, traditionally I've gone to Antarctica. Um, although that hasn't happened in the last few years for me. Yeah. Um, or for anybody. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so that's, that, those are the places that I really love. Actually, it's funny as COVID was sort of, uh, taking a stranglehold on the, on the world, uh, the first two weeks of March of 2020, I was in Morocco in North Africa, uh, with a couple of friends, uh, skiing in the Atlas mountains. Oh, wow. And it was, it was my seventh continent. Uh, the skiing wasn't great, but the, the travel experience and cultural experience was amazing. And I really want to get back to there, get back to those mountains with some clients and go ski touring. Cause it's just a super special place to, to ski. Um, so yeah. And as I said earlier in the podcast, you know, I love sharing my passion for skiing, the experiences that I have with people and pushing their boundaries in cool mountain environments around the world so that they come out of a week of skiing with me or however many days it is, um, improved, smarter, um, you know, trusting their, their decision-making more like those things are just awesome. It's, uh, in a way it's kind of me giving back, but you know, to other skiers. How do you choose your clients? 
Well, they choose you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, a little bit of both. I mean, I, I meet people, you know, all the time and yeah. all over the place. And sometimes they, they know me by my reputation or a friend of theirs has gone on a trip with me and they've heard about it. And like, Hey, I want to do something with you. And other times it's uh, someone that, you know, maybe comes to my ski camp in Chile, or I guide for a, a one day thing in Aspen. And during that day, we have conversations about other parts of the world. And, you know, I'm pretty good at dropping uh, little hints in their mind, whether they know it or not. And pretty soon they're like, Oh man, really? You go to South America. Cool. I've always wanted to do that. Well, I'll come to your camp. Or yeah. I've always wanted to ski in Japan. Well, hey, I've got a free week this coming year. You know, so I've built a really great network over the years of doing this. Um, and people that just want to do cool stuff and go from one trip to the next trip to the next trip. And again, it's it's sort of what I love to do and I want to keep doing. Um, and it's great for like my sponsors and the brands I work with because it, it not only keeps me relevant, but it keeps me in front of the consumer. So they're yeah. seeing all the products that I'm using and there's a great connection there. Um, yeah, so that's, that's been going great. And we just need to get past this, uh, this COVID shit so that things open up. I mean, like I've got, I had five weeks of clients in Japan this coming January and February. Now I'm down to three weeks, two people, two groups have dropped out, but the country's not open for Yeah, well, you don't even know. They're talking about, oh. um, a travel, what they call a travel bubble between Australia and Japan. Yeah, I've heard that, but I don't but think I it's going to happen for the US. From the Japan side, it's been pretty quiet. So right, right. Yeah. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking it might not happen, and I'm going to try to pivot. Well, I was thinking this last couple of weeks, like I'll, I'll just take people to the Alps. But now Austria is on a mandatory yeah. two week lockdown. I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, we don't know what's going to happen in the Alps either because COVID has kind of come back there. You know, all the all the hillbillies in the mountains that didn't get vaccinated are all getting it. Now they're having to shut everything down again. I know it's re- it's ridiculous. You think they'll be their third potentially yeah. the third winter without anything going on. No, it's hard to imagine. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to imagine. I mean, yeah, like you gotta wonder, you know, like you don't want to get sick and you want to travel. It's not not rocket science. No, of course. Yeah. I mean nobody nobody wants to get sick. And I don't mind like, you know, listen, I we both live in a beautiful place. Like I don't mind just being here. But at the same time, like I what I do for my business is take people all over the all over the world to cool spots. And yeah, I want to continue to do that. Well, doing that, like, how do you, you know, like with with um, Pow? Yeah, I knew you were going with this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but I was just, I was just, well, so yeah. What's your, um, what are your thoughts on that with your traveling and yeah, um, catching airplanes? Right, right. With your work with Pow. Yeah, it's a great question, and I, we get that question all the time. You know, yeah. you get called out for being a hypocrite because, you know, how can you speak up about? Uh, climate change and be an activist for, um, you know, sustainability and renewable energy and all these things when you fly around the world all the time. And I guess what I, the way I describe it is like, there's no such thing as perfect advocacy. Nobody in the world is perfect. Like we live in a carbon-based society. You have to, you know, have heat in your house or get in a car or go into a building. Like it's just inescapable. And in the profession that I have involves flying around. And, you know, fortunately I get to partner up with like United airlines and they're doing great things with their offsets and I can choose that. Um, it doesn't mean that it's, you know, I'm living some super clean, uh, carbon free, uh, lifestyle by any means. But at the same time, if I, you know, lived under a rock and never came out, then I have no voice. So um, this, this concept of imperfect advocacy is what we're really trying to um, get people comfortable with is like, hey, even if you commute to work in your car or you get on an airplane, it doesn't mean that you can't talk about these things that are important. 
Um, yeah. so yeah, that, that's where I land on it. You know, it's, I, I know it's the right thing to do. And, um, you know, it, the problem we, we have is not a, a, uh, airplane problem or a car problem. It's a fossil fuel problem. So we yeah. got to solve that root problem and electrify our transportation, electrify our grid. Uh, certainly the technology is there for vehicles right now. It's not quite there for aircraft yet, but yeah. it actually is around it's just not there in mass production um and then we just need the political will to pull it off you know we need our leaders in countries like australia and the united states to say you know big tax on gas big on you know on uh, on petrol and big incentives for electric vehicles and then it's it's a no-brainer everyone's going to go in the right direction yeah. um, but you know of course there's there's still a lot of money on the fossil fuel side, but, uh, it's, it's getting chipped away at and dwindling. And so, yeah, that's where, that's where I land on all that stuff. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, okay. So you're talking before about, um, the seven continents, have you climbed the seven peaks? No, I have not climbed the seven summits yet. I've done, uh, uh, Denali in North America and, um, Everest of course in Asia and Kilimanjaro in Africa. Um, but I am missing Aconcagua in South America and Mount Vincent in Antarctica. Um, and I went to, uh, Mount, um, well, I went to Kosciuszko, but I got on a whiteout, so I didn't, I didn't summit there. Yeah. But then, uh, I also, I also went to Karsten's pyramid in, uh, West Papua in Irian Jaya, you know, that's the highest peak in what we call Australasia. Yeah. Um, and, uh, we got totally, I got in a terrible rainstorm. I got, tried to fly into base camp with a helicopter. It just, it didn't work out. So I did not get up that one. So, you know, those, those peaks have not motivated me as much because they don't involve skiing. Yeah. Um, you know, and I want to go to places where I could ski. So, uh, you know, the seven summits is not something that's really on my list, to be honest. Although I was thinking it would be really cool to try to ski the seven highest volcanoes on each continent uh, like a volcano project. I don't know. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, trying to come up with something creative. <laughs> I don't think we have one here. <laughs> no, no, no. But there's, there's some you, in You missed somewhere. out on Kosciuszko, but that was yeah, right. pretty ugly day. That one. I do remember. Oh my God. It was ugly, but it was fun. We had a fun crew, didn't we? Yeah. My son went, my, my boy went, I think I had that's to sign right. you over as his guardian. Yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah. I said, yeah. Joe, are you, Joe, are you Chris, are you Chris, you Chris, you don't <laughs> didn't quite get it um okay so all the travel you've skied some amazing places what's your favorite place outside of aspen to ski it's that's that's a it's, it's a really really difficult really, really question difficult of course right because we love going yeah. wherever the snow is good you know i mean like i said earlier uh portillo chile has always been a special place for me niseko in the general hokkaido north island of japan i love the powder there um I love, you know, when it comes to like really big mountains, the heli skiing in Alaska and the ski mountaineering in Denali National Park is really difficult to beat. Um, gosh, I've had some amazing skiing in the, in the Southern Alps of New Zealand over the years. Yeah. Um, I mentioned Morocco. I've only been there once, but what a cool cultural experience. Yeah, you know, for, for me, it's not so much about like what's the raddest or the steepest. It's like, what's the most fun? Like being with people and being in a beautiful natural environment. Um, and yeah, I guess to answer your question, if I had to just stay in one place the rest of my life, I would just stay here because we have so much opportunity here in Colorado. But uh, um, yeah, I don't know the answer to that. I love Norway as well, like Switzerland, Zermatt, Verbier. Gosh, 
Yeah, I mean, we're in we're in, we're in a sport that's just full of beauty. It's great. Yeah, it really is. All right, Chris. Well, it's been awesome to talk to you. And yeah, really appreciate, appreciate your time. I know you've been you've been busy driving up to Copper Mountain with the ski racing with your your kid, etc. So um, yeah, great to catch up, yeah. and um, I look forward to seeing you either here in uh, Snowy Mountains or in Aspen sooner rather. Yeah, later. man. I, I would love to see you soon. We'd love to have you back in Aspen. And I need to get back to Oz. And uh, thanks again for being a great friend in the ski world. And uh, yeah, we'll talk soon. Well, that wraps up another Chill Factor podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please rate, review it, and share it with friends. And we'll be back with another episode in a few weeks. Until then, get out and live and love Australian skiing. And don't forget, you can find us at chillfactor.com. Ready to go, nobody knows snow like reggae no snow. He's ready to blow like an atomic reactor. This is the show.